It's hard to get our heads around how much carbon we've put up into the atmosphere in modern times, but here is how Victoria University senior climate scientist Professor James Rennick puts it. Half of all the carbon dioxide that's gone into the atmosphere since the 1700s has been emitted in Taylor Swift's lifetime. And half of that carbon total has happened since Taylor Swift released her first album. And that leaves a mark on the planet. We're now facing extremes that we've watched the rest of the world endure. Uh, Examples like Cyclone Gabriel or the Port Hills fires. James zeroes in on what those numbers mean for us and what we can do to stop climbing the carbon charts. His new book is called Under the Weather, a future forecast for New Zealand. And James Rennick is in our Wellington studio. Hi there. Hi, Jesse. How are you? Good. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah. Uh, Let me read from your Twitter profile. (laughs) Kiwi guy living in paradise, climate scientist, cyclist, woodworker, whiskey drinker, Whiskey drinker, born at 315 parts per million carbon dioxide. Why is that an important figure to mention? Oh, I think it just brings home the idea that the amount of carbon dioxide in the air has been going up for a long time. And it's I see this with a lot of people's profiles on social media. I thought it was a neat idea, so I went to the archives and found out how much was in the air back in the day when I was born. And it's a lot less than we have now, unfortunately. 315 then, how much now? Um, uh, the the May 2023 number I think is 424, so we've gone up something like another 100 parts per million since I was born. Can we see the effects of that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Every extra amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases warms the climate more, so you get bigger high temperature extremes, more moisture in the air, so heavier rainfall events, more evaporation, so more drought events, just more extreme weather generally. And we're seeing that um, building up and up and up, certainly in my lifetime and over, I guess, the last century or so at least. Single events don't prove anything either way, right? Um, Today is a cold day in Auckland doesn't, and around the country doesn't mean that climate change doesn't exist. You experienced the hottest day ever recorded in New Zealand in 1973. Indeed I did. I remember it well. I was at high school in Christchurch at the time. And yeah, that was an exceptional day with a very strong and very warm northwesterly wind. Uh, the famous Canterbury Norwester blowing. And, and it was just perfect conditions to get uh, extreme warming in those kind of flows. Uh, it hasn't been beaten yet. There have been a few days... Again in Canterbury, or the east coast of both islands that have come close to that, uh, up nearly at 40 degrees. And I, I'm sure that New Zealand, somewhere in New Zealand, will pass that record in due course. You just you can't avoid it as temperatures go up. Um, the extremes of temperature, they actually go up faster than the average. So we'll, we'll break through that 42 degrees sometime in the next few decades. Could be next year, could be in the 2030s or 40s, who knows. But it, it'll happen. Is change accelerating? Yes, it is. Uh, Because the amount of the emissions of greenhouse gases have accelerated, the amount that we're putting out per year now is a factor of at least two greater than it was in the 1980s and a factor of 10 more than, say, a century or so ago. Pardon me. So 
the the push that we're putting on the climate system has accelerated in recent decades, and the rate of change has gone up. You know, if you look at the last century globally, I think the um, the the rate of change is about one degree per century. If you divide it into two 50-year periods, you find the first 50 years, the rate of change is more like about half a degree per century, and the last 50 years is closer to two degrees per century. So that rate of warming has definitely gone up in the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, I'm hoping that that rate of rise will start to slow down. We really need to see emission reductions happening and and we just need to take our foot off the accelerator pretty much <laughs> literally to see the rate of change of extremes starting to ease off. Do you expect there'll be a tipping point, a moment where suddenly it goes desperately badly or will it be more gradual than that? Um, I think it'll be more gradual than that. I mean it's a, it's a bit of a hard question to answer, it's a mixed bag. You get extreme events in certain places, you know, ex-tropical cyclone Gabrielle here and, and, you know, the amazing, terrible fires and heat waves in Australia and Western US and Canada and so on, which for those communities might feel like tipping points. Um, but in terms of the overall climate system, I don't think there are any uh, thresholds we're going to pass through this century that would suddenly make it an awful lot warmer or, or a lot more extreme. It'll just gradually get worse over time. And I think, you know, that's that's bad enough. That that can be really problematic for societies. But um, it can still kind of sneak up on you. You know, the old frog in the pot syndrome, that things get gradually worse and you don't really realise until it's too late. So... Um, yeah, that, that's that's the way it works. I think. On average, days now are, uh, days now are a little more than one degree warmer than they were at the end of the nineteenth century. Why does one degree matter? Well, it it's it can be uh, it can fool you really. These apparently small changes in average conditions. Just what you don't realise from that sort of number is how much the extremes are changing. So you know, for temperatures, you get a a distribution. You get a range of, of temperatures. They go up and down from day to day quite dramatically. And some days you get really high temperatures. If you increase the average temperature by a degree, you push that whole range, that whole distribution of temperatures into the warm zone. And it's amazing how quickly the rate of extremes changes for what sounds like a pretty small change in averages. So a one degree warming can lead to a doubling or a tripling of the number of high temperature extremes and you start to get new temperature extremes that are outside of anything that have been observed before. So what sounds like a little change in the average can translate to a really big change in the extremes and that's those are what we really feel. I'll speak to Professor James Rennick. His new book is called Under the Weather, A Future Forecast for New Zealand. What are the chances that Cyclone Gabrielle was just a cyclone, same as Cyclone Bowler, same as cyclones that were presumably got in the 1800s and 1700s and 1600s? What are the chances, or to put it another way, what are the chances that it was made particularly bad because of climate change? It was definitely made worse because of climate change. We've had one study of this already, um, and there'll be more to come, no doubt. Um, the main thing that happens with cyclones or storms generally is that higher temperatures mean more moisture, more water vapour in the air. So you've got more fuel 
for rain events. When you have a storm, that water vapour gets condensed out, rains out, and if you've got more water vapour to start with, you're going to get more rain coming out of the sky on average. So we know that uh, it's, it's a little hard to say, somewhere between 20 and 30% of the rain in some places up the east coast of the North Island came from the fact that we've got a one degree warmer climate now. So we know that um, the amount of rain that fell out of Cyclone Gabrielle was partly as a result of climate change. And of course the energy release that when you um, condense all that water vapour and create the rain feeds the storm. So the intensity of the storm went up because of that as well. And the central low pressure in the storm, getting a bit techy here, but the, mm. the depth of the low was uh, in some parts of the country at least a, a record. You know, the the um, intensity of the storm in that sense, the low pressure was beyond what we saw with Bowler or, um, or su- other similar storms. It, there's always storms going on. There always have been and there always will be, but in a warmer climate, they tend to be more intense and have more rain coming out of them. This is off topic and possibly off your specialty, but I've <laughs> got to ask, because it's been come up, coming up in conversation a, a little bit recently, um, the Tongan volcano last year, has that affected our weather at all? It has affected the weather, and it's, it's, it's an interesting story. And it was an amazing event. It, because a lot of the eruption happened underwater, it put an awful lot of water vapour into the atmosphere and it punched a hole in the sky that went up tens of kilometres well into the stratosphere. And and a lot of that water vapour went into the stratosphere, so above the the level at which we really get the weather. But putting a lot of water water vapour in the stratosphere affects the way the winds blow there and it's it's affected the westerly winds in the southern hemisphere, it's affected temperatures over Antarctica, it's, it has had a knock-on effect on the patterns of weather over the southern hemisphere, but it, it hasn't really had an effect in terms of dumping a lot of extra rain on Aotearoa in the last few months, which, which is something I have heard said quite a bit, but um, the, the water vapour that stayed around near the surface of the earth would have rained out pretty okay. quickly after the eruption which happened you know a year and a half ago so there have been indirect effects on the weather patterns in the southern hemisphere for the last year and more but in terms of you know the the rain that came out of the cyclone the cyclone gabrielle and so on um i doubt there was any direct effect um someone wants to fact check you check you i know you're up for it um <laughs> latest daily average of co2 in the atmosphere is 416 parts per million according to the newer carbon watch please don't exaggerate Ah, yeah, that, that's a great comment. And I, um, the reason I said that 424, that was the latest monthly value from the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. And so the, there is a difference between the northern and the southern hemispheres. Most of the emissions are in the north, so the northern hemisphere has a bit more carbon dioxide than the southern hemisphere. And the northern hemisphere has a bigger seasonal cycle of carbon dioxide because there's more land, more plants, growing and decaying through the seasons in the Northern Hemisphere. So yeah, those numbers month by month are not totally comparable. What what we really should look at is the annual average and the global average and I think that is sitting at it's less than 420 it's 400, that that sort of number 416, 418 uh, just a little bit less than 420 parts per million so yeah I wasn't meaning to exaggerate. I was using a particular number from a particular place. Thank you. 
Will New Zealand be more insulated against the effects of climate change because we live in a climate which is, I think this is your term, in the Goldilocks zone, not too hot and not too cold? Hmm. Um, Yeah, to a certain extent that's right. I think it'll take longer for uh, the extremes of climate change to really be felt here compared to other countries that are more exposed to those extremes. And Australia is a good example of that. It's closer to the equator, it's, it's hotter, it's drier. And so you don't have to push the climate there so hard to get extremes that are difficult to adapt mm. to, such as the big fires you know, they had a, a couple of summers ago. Um, so, yeah, New Zealand is less likely to see those extremes so quickly. So we will be, I think, a bit of an oasis region in terms of climate change for a while. You know, if you push the climate hard enough, it'll become pretty difficult to deal with even here. But um, assuming we do get on top of emissions reductions soon, um, this country may well, comparatively speaking, um, be doing all right. And that's not necessarily, you know, all good news for for us. We're a very connected country and we, you know, we live in the world. Uh, a lot of people around the world are going to look at this country and think, oh, would be quite a good place to go to avoid some of these extreme events we're experiencing where I live. We might have a lot of people who want to come here to live, to get away from the the bad news in other countries. So how we deal with that, how that plays out, I think, is, is an important issue. Whether we end up with uh, a much larger population because we are this climate change oasis, I'm not entirely sure. But th- there are consequences, you know, of being a country that doesn't feel the effects of climate change quite so much as mm. some others. You understand what's happening with the climate. You can see into the future. You know how bad it could get. must be tremendously frustrating for you. Not, I don't want to speak for you, but I imagine it must be tremendously frustrating for you when you see government policy, um, which is, seems even to a, a, a lay person like me, extremely incremental. I'm not talking just about this government, but successive governments. No one seems to be treating it with the urgency that you might expect. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it has been frustrating for yeah most of the time I've been studying the problem. I'll have to say, though, there's been a lot of progress made in the last few years in this country. You know, the Zero Carbon Act, the Climate Change Commission, that all of the moves that have been made at the political level to at least get us to the point of starting to reduce emissions. I have to say that's good. You know, from a policy point of view, the landscape in this country is quite different to how it was even five years ago. But we still haven't seen emissions really starting to come down. And that's, that is frustrating because every day that goes by where we're still emitting vast amounts of carbon dioxide and so on, is another day lost and, and another day sooner to when we run out of the budget of these greenhouse gases if we want to stop warming at one and a half degrees or, or two degrees even. So th- the sense of urgency still isn't there with uh, governments and policymakers around the world that I can see, which, you know, that, that staggers me when I consider the dangers that we face. I would have thought every government would be absolutely onto it, and yet they're not. What is the low-hanging fruit? How do we make an immediate and significant impact on carbon emissions? Well, I think in this country, and in a lot of countries, um, emissions from transport 
are a big part of the story. So a lot of the carbon dioxide emissions in this country come from transport and a lot of it from, you know, individuals driving their cars to work and so on. So if there could be big investment in public transport and a big push to electrify the vehicle fleet and not just replace every petrol-powered car with an electric one, um, try and get people out of cars, you know, make public transport more attractive, make active transport more attractive, you know, bike lanes and so on, and just try and join the dots between the active, the public and the private transport to make the journeys that we take as low carbon as possible. And if that could be done, you know, if the investment could be made over uh, the next few years, we could reduce the country's carbon dioxide emissions really substantially, quite quickly. That's something I'd love to see happen. Do you think the time for encouraging people to make their own changes in their lifestyle might have passed, that we may have to admit by now that it's going to take um, some stronger legal sort of incentives to do it? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Uh, I think it's it's always useful and relevant to encourage people to make changes in their own lifestyles. And, and it's really good from a psychological point of view. You know, if, if you think, yes, okay, I'm taking the bus now instead of driving my car to work or whatever it is, I'm making a difference. I'm contributing to solving this problem, and that's pretty empowering stuff. So I would never want to move away from that. But you're quite right. You know, this this is a global problem. It's a problem certainly at the national level, and we need uh, we need the, the the sort of top down part of the story to become more prominent. So yeah, government regulation, governments helping businesses move in the right direction you know by opening up imports of electric vehicles or investing in renewable technology etc um, all of those kind of things need to happen but I think having the bottom up part of things going on as well is is important both from a psychological point of view but also you know individual communities can do their own things with wind turbines or public transport networks or whatever it might be and I think it is important to have that going on as well so joining the dots between the bottom up work and and the top down uh, directions uh, is a good way to go I would say One of the world's biggest insurers State Farm says that effective May 27 it is no longer accepting new applications for homeowners insurance Mm. in California due to a rise in catastrophe exposure caused by fires that's pretty incredible isn't it that's amazing yeah and yet it's exactly the kind of thing uh, you'd expect from the situation with the changing climate and I know my colleague Belinda Story has worked a lot on uh, the effects of um, sea level rise and flooding on insurance policies in this country on the insurance sector and the same kind of thing is starting to happen here, that if you live in a place that is very exposed to, um, say, coastal erosion or um, river flooding, such as the kind of things we saw with Cyclone Gabrielle, you know, uh, insurance companies are probably going to be reluctant to keep covering um, properties that are, are very risky. And that, you know, that's, that's a tricky situation. I don't think it's right to just leave homeowners out to dry sort of to deal with it themselves if they lose insurance it's um, it's a situation that needs to be certainly discussed nationally and, and 
we need to find solutions that involve central government and local government and individual property owners around you know who who pays for the cost of this kind of thing but yeah it is it's a big move in California and it's it's similar to the moves that are starting to happen here and will will be happening all around the world as the risks spiral up uh, insurance companies are not going to be able to cover all of those risks and they need to protect themselves financially as well um I need a short answer, and I know it's not a really a short answer to this question, <laughs> but how should we think about methane? Huh. Well, methane is a greenhouse gas, and it's a very powerful greenhouse gas. I suppose if there's good news about methane is that it stays in the atmosphere for quite a short time. Carbon dioxide's around for centuries, but methane's only sticking around for a decade or a bit longer. So if we can start turning down the tap of methane emissions, that that starts to reduce the concentration in the atmosphere quite quickly. And as soon as you start reducing that concentration, that's a cooling effect that comes into play quite fast. So I think because carbon dioxide has the longest lifetime in the atmosphere, it's, it's the biggest problem. But if we can take even some action on methane, reduce methane emissions a bit, that's a contribution to capping the warming so yeah I think we should be looking at ways to reduce methane emissions but it's not as urgent as getting on top of the carbon dioxide emissions uh, oh, I just got an email through and oh, I was going to wrap up but I'm going to sort of put this one to you because it sounds like it might be a, a common myth mm-hmm. please please may the expert be asked about what I understand is the melting ice cubes in a jug experiment not discounting sea level rise concerns. Now, let me see if I can paraphrase this person. Um, we understand because of climate change that the ice caps will melt and that will cause sea level change, but mm-hmm. climate change deniers will say, hey, if you have ice cubes in a jug and all the ice cubes melt, actually the water level doesn't go up, so what gives? How have they done there? Um, yeah, yeah, well done. And, and quite right, if the ice cubes are floating in the water at the start and they melt, that doesn't change the level of water in the glass. The, the trouble is these big ice caps, and for that matter glaciers on the Southern Alps and other mountains, they're not floating in the sea, they're sitting on land. And that goes for the Antarctic ice sheet, Greenland ice sheet. So when you melt that ice and the water flows into the sea, you're adding water to the oceans that wasn't there before. So it's a totally different situation. That's why uh, sea levels rise when these ice sheets and glaciers melt. It's a different story with sea ice because that is in the ocean. It's frozen seawater. When that melts, that doesn't change sea level. But when the ice sheets melt, boy, that can change sea level dramatically. Pleasure to have you on. As always, it's raced mm. by Professor James Rennick. Thanks so much. Oh, cheers, Jesse. There's plenty more in the book, which is called Under the Weather, a future forecast for New Zealand.